Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Over the past week, there's been a huge change in how scientists consume social media, and that's hit our fields with a tidal wave, more or less. And our very own Nabil is at the very center of this. So Nabil, can you tell us what's gone on here? Okay, so what Andrew's alluding to is a migration of academics on Twitter to a different platform called, platform called Mastodon. And... There's some interesting nuances and changes in that that I think we'll talk about as we go to the episode. But before we get started, I'll probably just explain what, what Mastodon actually is for people who don't know. So Mastodon is a free and open web application that runs on a web server. So it's like a self-hosted blog, or maybe you've been to a bulletin board, a forum web page, or something like that. It's basically the same thing. It's just an application running on someone's computer somewhere. And the layout of the site is it's designed very much for microblogging. So small, short, condensed posts from its user base, very much like Twitter. There is what makes it different though to other sort of insular things that you might've run into like web forums and things like that is that the different servers that people set up can actually uh, integrate and communicate with each other. So if you're a user on one, you can look up a user on another and you can follow them or reply to them or read their content. So that's, but that's basically it. That's all that's hap- That's all that Mastodon is in a nutshell. I missed a step. Why are people migrating from Twitter? So I think this was on the back end of Elon Musk buying some fraction i don't know what how the ownership works but he's bought some fraction of it and he's started to make radical changes people don't seem to like elon musk for a variety of reasons they they seem to believe that twitter prior to elon musk buying it was somehow going was somehow maintaining free speech and some sort of something to do with democracy i have no idea and they fear that that's in, in jeopardy because of Elon Musk's involvement. I, I, I don't know. For me, it's a website where you post cat pictures and trash talk people, trash talk celebrities. It's a private entity. It has no, it's not a universal human right to be on Twitter, to have your freedom of speech protected by Twitter. Like, like that's, it's just a web page. It's just a website. Anyone can make, and if you're a bioinformatician and a programmer, you're quite capable of making your own version of Twitter. <laughs> like there's nothing magic about it. I've been using Twitter since 2007, and I found it very, very useful over the years for sharing papers with other scientists, particularly, and you know, for actually interacting with the community. And I've made a lot of friends actually in real life through Twitter. 
which is a bit mad when you think about it because it is just a a random social network. Sunnyvale, where did this all come from? I know yourself and Duncan McCannell have set up your own server. Yeah, so so on the back of all of this furor over Twitter, different people, including myself and Duncan, started setting up, started playing around with Mastodon and we decided to set up our own instance. It was, I think Duncan said, you know, like, this is a thing, like people are playing with this, we should have a go. He bought a domain, I set up a, a, a virtual server, and we just put up an instance of Mastodon in a couple of days. It's called, uh, it's mastodon.science, so m-s-t-d-n.science, that's the, that's the web URL. And we just decided to play around with it. We said, okay, well, this could be a technology. We always like tinkering with things. And we thought it'll be a place where some bioinformaticians, microbial genomics people, some microbiologists who are quite tech savvy would come and hang out and post some messages and share some memes and have a good time. And probably like 50 people, 100 people, you know, like nothing great, but just something to play around with this technology. And in the back of my mind, when we were setting it up, I was thinking, this is really interesting as an exercise because you know, playing around with it, seeing where this could go is you could use this. Let's say you have a conference. Let's say you have a, an organization and you set up Mastodon and you say, this is like a private social network, Twitter-like thing for your participants, for your employees, for your, for, you know, you could have it based around any type of organization or topic and just have a separate space for that sort of walled space just for those people. So I would be interested to hear if a research council uses it or a university uses it or an interest group. And our thing was an interest group around microbial genomics. That's why we set it up. And we weren't thinking it was going to be very big. But then something happened. There was some sort of stampede of people who wanted to get out of Twitter and try this out and find a separate space and connect with other people. And it wasn't just us, there were a number of other instances were set up. There's one set up called genomic.social, which is just for genomic science. There's one called coevo.social, which is for ecology and evolution. There's existing ones like fediscience.org or scholar.social or scicom.xyz. And all of these instances, new and old, suddenly got a barrage of people trying to join up. I mean, at the moment we have about 2000 users that have signed up for, for just the instance I, I and Duncan set up, there's 2000 for that. But there's probably maybe several other thousand users that have joined the other instances around science. So a lot of scientists have just started to, you know, dip their toe into this and see, is this like a thing? Should we be playing around with it? And that struck me as really odd, you know, you know, like, okay, well, let's just ride the wave and see what happens. So we just keep throwing more resources to the server. It's a, it's a virtual service. So you can dynamically resize it. So, I mean, you don't have me going to a root cupboard somewhere and swapping out disks. I don't have to worry about that sort of thing, but it's dynamic. We can resize it well enough and, and things like that. So it's fairly manageable to just accommodate more and more people. So, all right, fine. Let's see what happens and see where this, it could work. It might not work. It might just crash and burn. Probably everyone will get bored or maybe there will be a core group of people that keep using it. I have no idea, but let's just try it out. What's the worst that could happen? So what are you up to on your virtual server? Like what are your resources How much, and, and how many users is that holding? So we've got almost 
two, at the time of recording, we've got almost 2,000. It's a, it's, oh, I've forgotten. It's a four gig, I think it's a four gig memory and four vCPUs virtual machine that's running. The, most of the content, like static things, like all the pictures are being put on an object store bucket somewhere. It's not very intensive. I mean, the most expensive thing is actually getting a mail server that works. Sending emails to people has become incredibly complicated, it seems, because you're very, because of the amount of spam out there. So there's a lot of controls to try and stop spammers. And that actually makes it difficult for an honest person like myself, who just wants to send an email to someone saying, hey, this is, if you want to reset your password, just click this link or, hey, you've You've actually been confirmed for the website that you yourself signed up for. <laughs> that's actually the most complicated part. But that's the resources that's going on in the background, really. It's all fairly light and easy. So how much is that going to cost? You know, like, is there a rough guide to how many thousand users and how much it's going to cost every month? It depends. It depends because it's not just the user count. It's actually the, because it's like a network that's integrating with other instances. It's also the amount of interactions and following they do for other users elsewhere, because you're spending this resource of trying to cache what other users are connected to. So it's not like a strict linear thing. I will say it's about, it's about a hundred pounds per thousand user to a point. Wow. That's quite a lot. And I guess that's not something that you realize. So when you use a, a free social network, particularly because, you know, they're making money off advertising and, and off your data. But that's that's quite a substantial amount. Yeah, it is a substantial amount for one person to carry just like by the by, like just so everyone else can have fun. Yeah, I should mention the platform, the Mastodon platform doesn't actually give you any system of adding in ads, even if you wanted to, not that I would. So it's all ad free, but someone has to pay the price for running the server. And yeah, it costs money. Yeah, so what is your model of, of paying for it long-term? I have no idea. Some people have been very, very kind to just chip in some <laughs> money, which I really, really do appreciate. They know who they are, but yeah, I don't know. Most people, for other instances that are long-standing, there are these sort of Patreon-like monthly subscription that sort of work on a donation basis. That seems to be what people tend to use. There is one, there are a few of these which are more like, very transparent and they're designed specifically for NGOs and charity sort of uh, endeavors, like foundational kind of things, which are a bit more formal, but look very good in terms of transparency and things like that. So there are platforms to, to raise the money. So I'm not too worried about it. Well, all the financial concerns aside, I mean, this is really exciting and I've enjoyed it a lot. You have certain people that, that you were excited and surprised that they came on, or do you have certain toots? <laughs> As, the, um, as they call them that they liked. For, so I don't watch the signups for other instances, but I have noticed at least an hour tiny. So this is one instance out of many where I'm seeing this just for, just for our own. We've had a Nobel laureate join. We've had a lot of journals suddenly show up. I was surprised about that. I was surprised about the number of scientists from other disciplines who sort of hopped on it as well. And there's very interesting posts that I would not have seen on Twitter that I'm starting to see more more of. So things from things, people from pharmacology or immunology or people from even history, things like that who are rocking up and making accounts and posting content. And it is actually interesting to read what they're up to. I was never really subscribed to that in Twitter. 
Yeah, I'm sure you would never kick anyone off. No. I know that you've had some technical challenges. Like I, I know the other day you had some kind of issue with pictures. Are these yeah. easy to deal with? Yeah, it's easy to deal with. You just have to get your head around. The, the problem is, is that there's so much, because the user base is growing very quickly. It's about, it was like two or 300 people a day jumping on. And then each of those would, would spawn a whole bunch of activities. So you had to be quite, what was happening in the background sometimes was that in the evenings, a lot of people would, would hop on. And then basically the web server would run out of threads. It wasn't able to keep up. It's it's set up quite it's it's quite robust in the back end. It's not going to crash. It's designed in a way that well, I'll explain the implementation and, and explain what then you'll understand why things get stuck. So the server is written in a mix of JavaScript and Ruby. It's basically run as a web application with the PostgreSQL as your database backend, and it has a Redis cache, which is sort of a in-memory cache of things sitting up front so that it can quickly serve content to people. This, if you're someone who's done web, this is, there's nothing bizarre or strange about it. It's all very standard stuff. There is a background process called Sidekick, which sits there as a demon that takes on all of the sort of background jobs and processes it yeah, as well. So you've got that other background process running as well. But that's, that's it. You have your web server process, your Sidekick, which is your background process and your database process running at the same time. You said it was a, a hundred pounds per thousand users, give or take, and that might explain it too. Like there's a, there's a process happening all the time or a few processes. The web server itself has processed about 1.5 million jobs in a week. <laughs> it's doing a lot. What I didn't realize at first is because, because I see like us as users posting and I think, okay, well, there's not that much traffic. It's sort of chugging along. Okay. Then I, then you look at the back end and you realize, oh, wait a minute. That's, this is the problem with this is that it's, it's trying to replicate all of this content and pull content from all of the other instances. So it's spawning a lot of jobs, even if your user count doesn't change very much. So are you limiting which instances it communicates to, like just to like little science one or to, are you taking in everything? No, I'm taking in everything at the moment because a lot of people who are scientists have jumped on to more generic instances as well. So they're on, so the biggest instance is called mastodon.social. So if you hop on that, that's just sort of, but that's a free fall of anybody, anybody who's anybody who's just on it. And quite a few People in our community have jumped onto that and they've kept the account there. And, you know, I don't see a reason to drop, to block domains. I have started blocking domains, but this is not because of trying to limit the requests or the access, but because those, those, those instances, those servers are serving content that you don't want people to see, <laughs> or I don't think people would appreciate it. This is, this is the wild west of the internet. If, if you've been on the internet for a long time, you'll remember there is a lot of gray spaces out there that aren't safe and you need to be a little bit careful. And, you know, because this is a decentralized network, they're also sort of, there's also, the, they're also sitting there in the background. I mean, you can find bot accounts and spam accounts and all of that on, on anything like Twitter or Facebook or whatever as well. But it's sort of more upfront. It's more upfront for me, at least, because I'm seeing it as a as an admin. I have to moderate it, so I've blocked a few, 
pretty dodgy dodgy servers. Yeah, so people are, I think you said that we're migrating. People are migrating over from Twitter. Do you think that people are using it as a total replacement? Some people seem to have totally deleted their Twitter account and jumped over to this. I think we've got to unpack that there's been a lot of bad will towards Twitter as a platform for a long time. A lot of people, I think, are quite tired. If you were someone like, like for instance, me, like I'm quite fed up with Twitter. If, if you were someone who joined Twitter circa 2007, 2009, because you were a professional, someone in tech, someone in science, Twitter was a very, very, very different place. It was just the people you could find, you could follow. Those people would retweet and you would see their content. That was it. There wasn't any promoted content. There wasn't really any ads actually embedded in it that much. And you would just see the scientists. So you would hop on and you'd see your, you'd you'd just see like scientists saying things. And then it became what it is, which is more of a, a news thing or a gossip channel. And that was more started to get away from why we joined it in the first place. So because on the back of that, I think a lot of people just said, yep, okay, this is a sign. There's somewhere else to go. I'm going to kill my Twitter account and I'm going to leave now because I've been fed up for years and I'm out. I don't think there's a sing. this is like a singular event that's that's driven people away. This is a sort of straw, final straw. Emma, why did you jump from Twitter over to Mastodon? For me, it's a little bit of head bet hedging. It's I'm not sure what direction Twitter might go, but the idea of having something that can't be fully controlled by one person that is more federated, that if one part of it becomes bad, you can shift that weight onto other parts. That seemed like a really good idea right now. So I'm still not really sure what's going to happen. I don't have any plans to leave here at the moment, but it seems like a good idea to have uh, a backup. And it looks like you're actually in Hingston now. I know that background. <laughs> I am indeed. Yes. What What is the background? How do you recognize it? Yeah, that's pretty impressive. I'm just in like a corner. <laughs> I, I worked in, in Hingston for a decade, so I've been there many times. The bricks are very individualized. We went over a lot of the of the inner workings of Mastodon and how Nabil's running it and, and the costs and, and compared to Twitter and everything. And so it's really nice to hear your opinion. I think Emma raises an interesting point, though, that there are plenty of other social media networks people can go to, right? We could have all gone to like LinkedIn or something or, or whatever. There's plenty of, of places you can go. But I'm interested in this. This, this is not like Emma's not the first person to say that it's interesting that we've changed the architecture of the of the platform. It's a decentralized platform. The power is in, you know, if like, let's say you get kicked off an instance, you can create your own instance and you can start participating in the network again. Like you're not, or if you don't like what an instance is doing, you can go to another one. So the power is, there's a power shift in the content you want to see and who you want to interact with that's not available in a centrally controlled platform. And I'm curious if that's for everyone, if that's why that has suddenly become really important or what what changed all of a sudden? Because that's always been there. That's how the internet always worked. The the internet has always worked like that. I I don't know if the internet's always worked like, it's it's meant to be decentralized, right? So, but, but it's gone towards... Yeah, like like this aggregation of of these sites. Like I don't go to a zillion sites like I used to in the nineties. <laughs> I I go to like the the five or ten sites on my phone. It's weird. 
No, I think it's really strange. I mean, what is the internet? It's a bunch of other people's computers talking to each other. I have like on my on the, on the front screen of my phone, I have like Reddit, I have Twitter, but now I have Mastodon. <laughs> and I think that's great. Yeah, I, I read the Mastodon feed before I read anything else at the moment. It might be because I'm just trying to check if the servers crashed or not. I mean, I wonder if part of it is just that maybe we did need larger things to, to convince us that that these ideas were useful and possible and accessible because I certainly was not part of anything like, like Mastodon before Twitter or I mean, until 10 days ago. And I'm not sure that it's something I would have necessarily gotten into before I, before Twitter, which is very accessible, very easy to use, very well known, kind of showed me what can be done with something like Microplug. So maybe these bigger services have just done the hard work of introducing these ideas and how these can be useful and how they can even be revolutionary to a broader audience that we can then take that back and we have the I don't know the interest to make it work in a more decentralized way which does take a little more work so you have to kind of know is it's worth it and maybe that's I don't know maybe that's how it will all go that we learn that these things are cool and then we decide actually we're willing to put the work in to make them ours. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think if you weren't raised in IRC channels, you probably just, yeah, this would be your first time seeing seeing that part of the internet. It's a delightful part of the internet and I miss it a lot, actually. It's good to, it's good that people are feeling, you know, engaging with it and seeing the, the value there. And it is limited. It does have the, the, the quintessential problem. The first thing people complain about with Mastodon is, is, is the fact that it's very hard to find other people and search for things and locate content and it's like well yeah because in the on the old days of the internet it was a skill to locate the good memes to locate the good jokes to locate the good website the inf informative stuff to be able to use a search i don't know if people still get taught how to use a search engine in school like how to use boolean operators when you use a search engine when you could sign up for a library training, you know, get trained to use as at the library. But that was like a thing, like you had to know how to find the thing you wanted. And someone who was very, very good at it was actually very valuable. And if you, and that's where data, so data, data aggregation is sort of this fundamental problem. And people might not remember that that's where websites like Buzzfeed or Reddit or Dig or a Huffington Post or whatever got famous and got rich because they were able to do this very, very well. So I migrated over from Twitter quite easily and brought a lot of my followers and they were all on Mastodon as well, or a fair few of them. There's like websites out there where you can just kind of put in your Twitter stuff and it logs in, you put in your Mastodon handle, logs in, and then it gives you a CSV file which you just import and it magically finds, it doesn't find everyone, but it finds, you know, a few people to get you started, which is quite handy, particularly people who put their Mastodon handle in their profile somewhere. I find it nice to, to start from scratch. I make a fresh choice of who I want to follow. It I brought over my dozens of users. <laughs> I've, I've been pretty selective. I mean, being the, being on the admin side, you're sort of the dungeon master. You wind up having to troll through all the stuff anyway. You don't want to read all the backstories, but it's just sort of there. You have to kind of go through it. You see all the emails and people signing up and you kind of go, oh, okay, fair enough. Is this the end of Twitter or is it just a temporary flash in the pan and we'll all go back to, to Twitter in a few weeks, you know, when we've, and we'll forget about Mastodon? Probably. 
I don't know. We'll see. I think it's going, I think it's introduced a lot of people to a different way of approaching social media. So it's a useful exercise. That sort of education is, is always helpful. I think it will change. There are mechanical things about how the, the Mastodon itself, but even others that use this sort of federated decentralized network, because there, there are actually other tools, other apps that will interact with the content realistically there's a whole bunch of platforms that are stitched together with just like with api you know rss api json json strings all over the place that are all talking to each other but the problem is with that is that there's a good latency involved decentralized networks are always slow because you can't for instance you can't guarantee that the other that the other thing that you're interacting with, you say, hey, can I have this post? And, it's a, and it doesn't respond. You just have to say, oh, well, I guess they're busy. And then you wait. And then so then you go back and you try it again. So you, so you have this latency with, with decentralized networks. And so that mechanically, it can't replace Twitter because Twitter is designed as a central fast resource. For instance, they could index all of their, their tweets and they could give you a really good search engine. You can't do that in a decentralized thing because you can't necessarily scrape all the data off every single server. You don't have control over the content to, to, to really be able to do that. So it won't replace Twitter as a one-for-one -one replacement, but it might fit certain use cases that people are looking to Twitter for, which is a bunch of academics schlepping around and uh, hosting and complaining about papers, basically. I think it's perfectly <laughs> legitimate for that. Any final words from Emma? I, I don't know. I, I'm maybe a little more optimistic. Certainly for me, the vibe that I'm getting from Mastodon right now is one that I really like. I feel like it's more like Twitter when I first got active on Twitter. And I think part of that is maybe just numbers. There's fewer people there. But I also just think that everyone there has kind of been it's, it's re-leveled the playing field a little bit. People are not necessarily feeling as driven by, you know, trying to get into the algorithms that, of course, dictate Twitter. But also, it's, you know, it's Mastodon.science is what I'm on. And so it's a lot of scientists. And that's really nice. It's kind of back to being about talking about science and science-related things. And that's what really got me, you know, falling in love with Twitter way, way, way back when. So I, I think it could it could really go both ways. I think Twitter itself, that's not, whether that fails or not, is not going to have anything to do with whether or not Mastodon really succeeds. I don't, I don't think that's going to be how that works, but whether Twitter ends up falling will of course have influence on whether something like Mastodon becomes even more successful. I think mostly Twitter's fate is going to just rely on what crazy ideas they <laughs> come up with and, and continue implementing. But there's been some pretty notable you know, movement that I think that there was an article that someone posted recently that was about this kind of, you know, losing that, that final barrier of trust. And then everyone's just like, yeah, that's it. We're, we're out. And I think that may be happening. So, so yeah, may, maybe that will lead to more people deciding that, sure, Mastodon is not the same. It will never be quite the same, but maybe in a way that's good and better. Oh, that's fantastic. I think we'll have to end on that. So we were talking about Mastodon and thank you very much to Emma Holcroft for her special guest appearance. And we hope that you will check it out in uh, the future and maybe decide for yourself. 
Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.